Good morning, Disciples Church. I'm Dan Green, and our scripture reading today is 1 John 4, 13 through 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is the love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It's so good to see all of you. Uh, Glad as always to have you with us on a beautiful morning uh, and excited to look at this text together. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here and we are so glad that you're with us today. So turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Well, a couple of weeks ago, my family and I were able to spend the day at uh, Six Flags Great America. I hadn't been there in probably 20 years. Uh, and it was my first, it was my kids' first time uh, going there all together. And they did a, a phenomenal job, um, particularly given the fact that this was their first exposure to roller coasters and all those sorts of things. It was uh, a harrowing day, but they went through it. Uh, they went through it really, really well. Better than I did, for sure, because one of the things I discovered is that I'm getting older. And so as I was getting off the ride, I'm going, wow, I don't remember being dizzy before. That's a new one. Um, but it reminded me of uh, the last time, that, or maybe the first time actually, that I was at Six Flags, which was probably early high school. Uh, I remember arriving there that day. It was my first time at a, at a full-size uh, amusement park like that, and I remember getting all the rides and just loving everything about it. And I remember at the time, the ride that we were most excited to ride was Raging Bull. Now, I don't know where Raging Bull falls on the pantheon of roller coasters. Like, I don't really keep uh, much uh, of, a, of a finger on that scene to kind of know enough about what's going on. But at the time, it was considered a pretty big deal. And I remember that my buddies and I, as we were getting onto that roller coaster, our intention was to ride it the entire way through with our hands up, which is something that people do for whatever reason. And I remember at some point, I mean, you're, you are, you're taking up this incredibly steep climb, and then you go from zero to 72 miles per hour in what feels like about a second. And you're moving so fast and the seat kind of comes away from underneath you as, as gravity drops out and, uh, and as you're doing these turns and you're upside down and all these kinds of things. At some point along the way, probably nearly immediately on that ride, I remember grabbing onto the bar because I just chickened out and I couldn't do it anymore. And of course, when you grab onto the bar at something like that, what, I'm, what I was looking after in that moment was a sense of security and safety, a sense of solidity in what felt like an out-of-control situation. But the truth of the matter is that, that my white-knuckled grasp was doing exactly nothing to keep me in that ride. 
I mean, if that bar and that seatbelt hadn't been across my lap, there was no amount of strength that I possessed to keep me in that ride. I didn't have a chance. And that really is, I think, emblematic of the human experience, particularly when it comes to spiritual things. What everyone is after in nearly every area of our life is a sense of safety and security. We want that solid ground underneath us. We want a feeling that things, as out of control as they might be, are still within our grasp. Well, John here in this text is writing to this church in Asia Minor to address the fears that they had about whether they were secure in their relationship with God. Everything felt like it was out of control for them. These were people who had been saved by the grace of God. They'd heard the good news of Jesus Christ. They had embraced it and they loved Jesus and they were part of this early church. They were young believers together. They were enjoying faith together, enjoying the family of the local church, but everything was thrown upside down when these self-proclaimed Christians under the title of Gnosticism came into the church and began to declare to them that their experience of Christianity was not quite complete. That in fact, they didn't know God as well as they thought they did. That they needed something else in addition to the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to truly know God. And they began to experience fears and uncertainty and they began to grasp with all of the strength that they possessed to try to make sure of their own salvation for themselves. And John, throughout this book, has been exploring the love of God as a means of communicating their security in Christ. He's writing so that this original audience and so that you and I here today, some 2,000 years removed from its writing, would be absolutely confident of the relationship that we have with God. And so John begins by saying this in verse 13. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. He's giving us one more standard, one more expectation, one more test that we can look at to be assured of the salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ. And he says, here's how you know that you can abide in him and that he abides in you because he's given us his spirit. Now we've talked about this at length in other texts, but he continues by saying this in verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And John, in some sense, is continuing to narrow his focus. He's, He's been taking us further and further into the love of God, and he's been narrowing the focus of that love to different applications within the life of the believer to reassure us of the identity that we have in God. And John comes in this text to this pivotal doctrine upon which our assurance hinges. Because he says in verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And that simple, straightforward statement is absolutely loaded with truth and meaning. First, notice what he says. He begins by saying this in verse 15. He says, whoever. And that word indicates the breadth of the love of God. As Frederick Faber wrote some 400 years ago, There's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. 
that those who make up the true church of Jesus Christ come from every tribe and every tongue and every nation on earth. And even though we are not in a position to see the individual hearts of other people and to know what's going on in their mind and in their soul, at the very same moment, God does And he is working together disparate peoples from all around the globe and all throughout time to bring together in Jesus Christ a a brand new family. And what ties them together, says John, and this theme is repeated throughout, throughout the New Testament, what ties them together is their common hope, their common confession, their common belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Now remember what the Gnostics believed about Jesus. They believed that he was a spiritual man, a a righteous man, a good man, a a man who loved God, but they did not believe that he existed co-eternally with God, nor did they believe that he was the Messiah. Rather, they believed that the Messiah was a spirit being that descended upon Jesus and left Jesus before Jesus' crucifixion. In other words, they denied that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. And that's why John takes the pains that he does to go after this specific idea. He says, I want you to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. And in that simple message, it is also loaded with meaning. Because to believe that is to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. It's to believe that Jesus existed eternally as God with the Father, according to John chapter 1. It's to believe that at the fullness of time, Jesus was born of a virgin to fulfill the law, according to Galatians chapter 4. It's to believe that Jesus came to make us righteous by his own sacrifice, according to Romans chapter 3. It's to believe that his resurrection provided eternal life for all those who believed in him, according to John chapter 11. And if you believe that, says John, you have the assurance already that God abides in you and you abide in God. It's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 10 when he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. That salvation, according to scripture, is as simple as believing the promise of God in his word. And in doing so, you begin to rest upon Jesus' finished work. And the contrary truth of that is that if you don't believe what Jesus says to be true about himself, if any of those things that we've declared about who Jesus is, either his coexistence with God, the fact that he is God himself, that he's the son of God, that he came to live among men, to fulfill the law, to take away our sin, if at any point you do not agree with what Jesus himself declared, then you do not have this security. And what John is implying here, according to Colin Cruz, one commentator said, he's implying that the Spirit teaches the truth about God sending Jesus as the Savior of the world, and knowing this provides believers with the basis of assurance. So the obvious question then is this, why do we who believe the truth of the gospel, if you're here and if you're a Christian today, and and I don't pretend that everybody necessarily is in that same spot, but if you're here and you claim to know and love Jesus Christ, then why is it that we continue to struggle with doubts and questions? And I think the primary struggle 
that many believers have with their assurance comes down to the way that they feel at a given time. I mean, certainly there are times throughout a Christian's life where we feel and experience the reassurance of God. Maybe we feel confident in a particular moment or season. Maybe we, maybe we feel a tangible sense of God's presence in our life that provides comfort or reassurance. Maybe we're reminded of his goodness through various ways that he brings blessing or provision into our life. But, but understand this, God in his goodness didn't expect you to find your assurance in a feeling. Feelings, by necessity, are fleeting. They change and they dissipate and they go. They change with our circumstances. They change with our, our mood. They change with how well we perceive our life is going or how well we feel we've performed. Our feelings are even subject to our personality. Some people by nature are just type A go-getters who feel that they can whip the world. And others are more timid or less self-assured. And still others are prone to melancholy and depression and anxiety. So our feelings can't be the final arbiter of our spiritual security, though God in his goodness may also give us feelings of assuredness. But in the words of one Old Testament commentator, a man named Chad Bird, the mistake we often make is to look for assurance in the very last place that we should be looking, namely inside of ourselves. We ask questions like, am I truly and sincerely repentant? Am I truly a believer in Christ? Is my faith genuine? Does my life and do my prayers reflect the fact that I'm a follower of Christ? The problem is that the more we focus on ourselves for assurance, the less assurance we're going to have and the more doubt is going to arise. So where do we look, says Bird? Not inside ourselves, but outside ourselves to the objective, saving, merciful work of Jesus Christ. He is our confidence. He is the one who lived and died and rose again on our behalf. And he says to us, I love you. I forgive you. You are mine. In other words, the beauty of the assurance that we have in the love of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ is that God himself is taking all of the weight of your assurance, all of the fears and the concerns and the doubts of whether you've done good enough or believed deeply enough or behaved well enough, and he has placed all of those things directly onto his able back. And in going after this, what John is attempting to do is to show you the foolishness of depending on your own grasp and your own ability to provide security that only comes from outside yourself. That Jesus himself, in essence, is saying, let go of the bar. Trust that I've got you. Enjoy the security and the safety that I provide. Don't worry about wriggling out of my grasp because you can't. He's attempting to pry our fingers loose from whatever it is that we're holding on to for security and to trust that the God-man that loved you so deeply that he was willing to literally give everything for you was not suddenly going to lose interest in you and walk away. 
See, when Jesus came to earth and gave himself up for you, he was using a temporal human season to demonstrate his eternal posture of love toward you. And when we begin to doubt God's love, either its sufficiency or its consistency, what we're in essence saying to God is prove to me in another way that you still love me. And listen, the wonder of who God is, is that when we struggle with our identity and our security, God doesn't respond to us by saying, what, this again? Haven't we had this conversation? Haven't I shown you enough already? What, you need more evidence of my love? No, he doesn't respond the way that we would typically respond. He's not growing tired of you. But likewise, his gentle and reassuring answer is not changing. How can you be sure that I still love you, says God, because Jesus still died for you? It's the truth of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That it was his initiating love that began this relationship. And this is why John writes this letter the way that he does. As we talked about in, our, in the first week of our series in 1 John, we talked about the idea that one commentator refers to this epistle as a spiral of love. John writes in kind of this roundabout, repetitive way. And if it seems like this is the sixth sermon where we've talked about the exact same idea, it's because this is likely the sixth sermon in which we've talked about this exact same idea. Because John is saying, and ultimately the Holy Spirit through John's pen is saying, this is such an important idea and you are so quick to forget it and so prone to ignore it that I'm going to keep repeating my love for you. It is further evidence that God does not grow tired of us, even in the middle of our doubts and questions and fears, but continues to come back with a reassuring voice. And John, in the midst of approaching a whole bunch of other topics, always circles back to this one big idea. And he continues with it in verse 16. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. This is that continued relationship of love, that circular relationship with God that we talked about several weeks ago. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Now, this is essentially a restatement of the passage that Dave addressed last week, where Dave said that we understand love by understanding God, that it is God himself who gets to define and who perfectly demonstrates love. And the amazing premise of all of this, which is that God's love is perfected with us, which doesn't mean that we always perfectly demonstrate love, but rather that the love that God gives us, as Dave mentioned last week, is complete and whole lacking nothing. In other words, take it as a demonstration of God's compassion for you that he is not looking for anything from you. He doesn't need anything from you. He is not dependent on your feelings or on your good works in order to continue his love being demonstrated in your life. 
No, his love is perfected in us, complete and whole because of who he is already. So that you can have confidence both in this life and in the next. As the hymn writer says it, no guilt in life, no fear in death, because Christ is in us. In other words, our questions of assurance are answered perfectly by the love of God. And the reason that understanding that God is love drives away our uncertainties is because it reminds us that God's love is inherently different than ours. See, our love can vacillate and change. It can fade and it can falter, but God's love doesn't do that. God's love is constant and unchanging and certain and far-reaching. God's love doesn't take off at the first sign of trouble. God's love doesn't flee when we fail. God's love doesn't diminish when we doubt. Why? Because love is not just a virtue that God shows. It is a persona that he embodies. It is who he is. And notice what that love is and does. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now notice the logic of what John lays down because for some of us, even though we may have heard this verse a hundred times before, the reality of it has never actually sunk in. What John is saying for the believer in Jesus Christ who struggles with doubt and assurance is that when you are experiencing fear, by, de by definition, you have forgotten love. When you are experiencing fear, you have gone back to an old mindset where outside of Christ, you were under the punishment of God. But the book of Romans is going to completely undo that concept for us because of what it, re what it repeats in a hundred different ways is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. In other words, if you are here as a believer this morning, there is no punishment for you. That even when we sin as Christians, God is not bringing punishment for that sin because Christ experienced punishment for our sin once and for all. That there is a direct correlation between fear in our lives and our misunderstanding of what punishment is. That the reason we fear in our relationship with God is because we presume that he will interact with us the way that we would interact with us. And as human beings, we think about everything through the lens of action and consequence. So when, in my relationship with God, I falter or sin or do not meet up to a standard or do something that I know to be wrong, I presume that I am back under the punishment of God. And to be under the punishment of God is something that is fearful and terrifying. To not know the love of God is to face his wrath and punishment. And it ought to scare you if you don't know Christ. 
that if you don't know Jesus, the Son of God, as your Savior, then you are still guilty in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. And it's exactly what the author of Hebrews had in mind when he wrote, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That if we don't know Jesus, we are accountable before God for our rebellion against him. In the words of one pastor, that all sin is cosmic rebellion against the king of the universe. It is treason against our creator. It is rebellion against our final authority. But John is saying that if you know Jesus, if you believe and have confessed who he is, then punishment has been removed and there is no longer a reason to fear. And thankfully, what Jesus Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago was to take the punishment that you and I deserved for all of our sin, that he took the cup of God's wrath and he drank every drop for you. That if you know Christ, there is no punishment, no condemnation waiting for you. And even in your moments of failure, you are not back under the punishment and wrath of God because Jesus perfectly and completely took it for you. And in the place of that fear, says John, God gave his own love. Love that reassures us of our position and our acceptance and our belonging through Jesus and love that has the ability to drive fear out. And that's why John says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. That since your relationship with God was initiated by his love, you can be assured that it will continue because of his love. That the burden of keeping that relationship on track has been removed from you and is now carried by him. We said in our confession earlier that the beauty of the gospel of salvation and the promise that we have of the removal of our fear is ultimately in the fact that Jesus accomplished all of us for it so that we do not have to respond like our first parents, Adam and Eve, did in the garden, covering ourselves with fig leaves. Do you remember that story? Adam and Eve ignore the instruction of God They rebel and they reject. They walk away from what God had explicitly rather instructed them to do. And in realizing their sin, when they hear the voice of God calling, the voice that had been there, the voice of their friend and the voice of their comforter and the voice of their father and the voice of one who loved them infinitely, the voice of one who created them out of the dust of the ground, when they hear that voice, rather than responding in love and running to his presence, they run away and cover themselves. Fear of punishment because the relationship had been broken. And for so many Christians who struggle with doubt and who struggle with the assurance of their salvation and who struggle with believing that God still loves them even when they sin, what they have done is they have put themselves back in the position of Adam and Eve. They presume that their failure as a Christian has put them out of communion with God and broken their unity with the Father. 
as if their unity with God is something that they can fix and as if it is not something that has already been fixed permanently and completely by God already. See, the wonder of the Christian life is that when we inevitably fail, we still have unbroken communication and communion with the Father. That that sin is just as forgiven the moment after we commit it as it was the moment before. Because what Jesus Christ did on the cross was once for all. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. That he is surprised by nothing. And that he has now invited us into a relationship of love. A love that continues, as this passage goes on, to address what we have addressed at length in weeks past. That the love that we have from God inevitably is going to be demonstrated with brothers and sisters in Christ. And as John points out, If you don't love brothers and sisters whom you do see, how can you possibly claim that you love God who you've not seen? How can you claim to love God if you hate those and do not love those who also love God? But the promise of this text is that God's love is so sure and so secure that it begins to work itself out in our lives, in the communion of the saints. So that when we're in those moments of doubt and struggle, we can be assured of who we belong to. See, when the roller coaster came to a stop that day, I experienced truth that what had been scary and unsettling to me was not an oversight by the person who designed it. That actually the point of a roller coaster is to have the feeling of excitement and fear without the significant risk of actually being hurt. And this life takes us through moments where things feel out of control, where we're scared or anxious or even where we wonder if we're going to make it through. And the reminder of this text is that the love of God demonstrated in the sacrifice of Jesus assures our safe deliverance. It guarantees our arrival at our final destination. That though we experience hardship and uncertainty, we can be assured that the love of God sustains and secures us and brings us safely home. So if you're here today and you're struggling, would you be reminded of the love that Jesus has perfectly demonstrated for you already? And to the extent that you doubt, would you look to the cross where Jesus with arms outstretched says in no uncertain uncertain terms, all of this has been done for you. Perfect love on the cross displayed. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, where the wrath and the punishment of God still hangs over you, would you see this text as an invitation? An invitation to know personally the one who created you and already knows you best, who invites you into freedom and forgiveness 
who invites you to enjoy his companionship and his friendship and his fatherhood so that you can be assured of a perfect love no matter what you experience in this life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we get to have this sort of confidence. We thank you that you know us intimately, that there is no part of who we are that is unknown to you. And God, for those who might pretend that they don't need you or declare that they don't want to know you or even deny your existence, would you do whatever it is that you need to do in their lives to demonstrate to them the reality of who you are, the depth of their sin and rebellion, and the far-reaching love that you have extended to them. And God, for those who know you in this morning but continue to doubt and continue to struggle and to continue to experience anxiety or fear or depression because they worry about their relationship with you, would you remind them that you loved them first? That you are not in their life as a result of anything that they've done? That they did not make the first move? that they did not initiate the relationship with you, but that you began it all and it is you who continues it and it's you who brings it to faithful completion. So when we struggle and when we fear, remind us of your love, the perfect assurance that we have in you. And would that perfect love be the thing that casts out fear in our lives so that we can begin to show love to others. So we pray all this in your beautiful name. Amen.